Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Miles and welcome back to my channel. Today we're going to be covering yet another solved Duochrome case for my Curious Case series. Thank you so much for everyone that submitted questions to me for my mukbang that's coming out on Wednesday, which is a Q&A mukbang kind of thing. If you have any more questions you want to ask me, it can be a Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply about anything, about me, about shoe crime, about literally anything, leave them down below or tweet them to me. I don't mind either way. I'd just like to point out this video is not being made to cause disrespect or anything like that. It's just been made to spread an awareness about this case by compiling information from various different public sources on the internet. Now with all that being said, Let's delve right into this case. The case we're discussing today actually took place over 60 years ago, and because of that, it's quite difficult to get a factual account of the crimes. None of the detectives who were originally assigned and worked on this case are alive anymore. And unfortunately, the local authorities didn't keep a written account of what happened, or at least they didn't keep a very accurate or detailed written account of what happened. Thankfully, a man called Michael Hall spent years interviewing surviving witnesses, relatives, and pursuing any leads for information in this case. And Michael was very, very successful in finding more information about this case. Michael's detailed report, along with other pre-existing reports, has made it possible to put together a complete account of Joe Ball and his crimes. Now, this case is somewhat of a legend amongst the Texans. A lot of Texans know Joe Ball by his name, and a lot of them have heard various different stories about him. A lot of Texans were told about Joe Ball by their parents at bedtime as like a bedtime horror story kind of thing and Joe Ball was often discussed around a campfire whilst exchanging ghost stories. This video is the true story of Joe Ball. The story starts in the late 1800s and is set in Texas. Back in the late 1800s, Texas was a wide open frontier filled with thousands and thousands of unsettled land. Everyone who lived in Texas was looking towards the future and everyone was kind of settling where they could. New towns and new cities and new settlements were popping up across Texas. One of those settlers was called Frank Ball, who is Joe Ball's father. At around 1885, Frank Ball moved to a settlement called Elmendorf. Now this settlement was a very small town in Texas and was about 15 miles southeast of San Antonio. This small town was founded by a man called Henry Elmendorf. Now Frank hadn't been in Elmendorf for very long before he went to the bank and decided to borrow some money from the Bank so that he could start his own factory which processes cotton. Very soon after Frank's factory opened, a railroad was built through the town and this made Frank's factory 
business absolutely boom. It took off significantly. Frank's business was absolutely flourishing. Now Frank became a very, 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 very wealthy man and he began to invest in real estate in the surrounding areas. Now he did this for a number of years before deciding to open his own general store in the town center. Frank and his wife, Elizabeth Ball, had eight children together and they raised those eight children in one of the very first stone houses to be built in the town. The Ball family became a very prestigious and important family in the community with each of the children going on to become important and valuable members of the community. One of the children opened a grocery store in the town before marrying a local teacher. Now this teacher was called Jane Terrell and Jane Terrell was actually later appointed uh, by President Roosevelt to be the town's postmaster in 1940 if that's just an indication of how prestigious and how important this family was. Joseph D. Ball was Frank and Elizabeth's second child and he was born on January 7th, 1896. Joe's childhood was somewhat isolated but that was all by his own decision. Joe often kept to himself and he rarely went out to play with other children and never went out to join in activities with other children from the neighborhood. Joe preferred to spend his time outdoors, fishing and hunting and exploring all on his own. Around the time when Joe became 16, his attention turned to guns and he became obsessed. Joe spent hours and hours perfecting his aim and practicing his gunmanship. Joe's nephew, Bucky Ball, described in an interview that Joe Ball could shoot a bird off of a telephone line with his pistol from the bumper of his Model A Ford. On April 6th, 1917, the United States formally declared war against Germany and entered the war in Europe. Shortly after, Joe Ball enlisted in the army and was shipped off to the front lines in Europe. Now, there was no public records of what happened during the war to Joe Ball specifically, but we know that Joe Ball survived without injury, and in 1919, he received a honorable discharge from the army. He then returned back to his hometown of Elmendorf. After Joe returned to Elmendorf, he soon began working for his father again, but he eventually quit quite soon, actually, after he started working again. According to some sources, Joe was having trouble adjusting to civilian life after spending two and a half years in the war zone. Now, unlike his siblings, Joe didn't follow in his father's footsteps. He did, however, learn a lot from his father about the business world. Now, in 1919, there was a prohibition against alcohol in Texas, and Joe, with his business mind, took advantage of that. He started selling his own illegal whiskey and beer. Joe would travel all around the area in his Ford and sell whiskey from his 50 gallon uh, tank that he kept in the back of his Ford. And as you can imagine, this business venture was illegal, but also very, very successful. During Joe's mid-twenties, he hired a young man called Clifton Wheeler to work with him and help him out with the illegal sale of these alcohol items. It is important to note that Clifton Wheeler was African-American, and the way that the authorities and the way that Joe treats him is somewhat racist, by somewhat I mean very racist. I don't really touch about it in this video, but you can just imagine in the times, the 1920s, there's a hell of a lot of racism going on and especially within his treatment you can imagine um, a lot 
of racism and a lot of discrimination. Now Clifton was a handyman by trade and he quickly found himself doing the dirty work and a lot of the labor for Joe. But Clifton was very, very scared of Joe and whenever Joe got drunk, he would blow off steam by firing a pistol at Clifton's feet to make him dance. Now after the prohibition ended, Joe's business began to plummet, as you can imagine. But Joe had learned a heck of a lot about the liquor and the beer industry, so he decided to take this knowledge and his business knowledge and open up a saloon. He purchased a small amount of land just outside of the town where he built a tavern, which he called the Sociable Inn. There were two bedrooms in the back and in the front there was a nice big bar, a player piano and a room with tables where men would usually drink, but also occasionally cockfight. Now, the majority of Joe's Patreons got along with him very well, but he was known across the town to be quite a creepy man. Um, he was one of those people that he didn't really want to make angry or get on the wrong side of. Joe's saloon was doing really, really well, but for some reason Joe decided that he needed some kind of a gimmick to help boost sales and to draw in more customers. So Joe quickly settled on the idea of having live alligators on his property. He built a alligator enclosure behind the saloon with a 10 foot high fence and inside he put five alligators. There was one large alligator and four smaller alligators. And Joe's idea to attract more customers worked. Saturdays were exceptionally busy for Joe and it was the day that Joe would put on a show, if you like, for his customers. Now, a quick warning before we go any further in this video, if you're sensitive to the death, torture, slash just talking brutality about live animals, including kittens and puppies and raccoons, then please skip ahead about maybe 20 seconds in this video. During these live shows, Joe would take a live raccoon, a cat, a dog, or any other animal that he could get his hands on and throw them into the cage with the alligators. Now, every time he did this, the crowd would go wild. Now, I'm gonna read an account of what happened at these shows, which is from the files kept at the San Antonio Public Library. The squealing kitten flopped into the pool. A big alligator lifted its jaws, closed like a vice, and the screaming cat was bitten in half. There's more to come, my pets, Joe Bull shouted as the drink-crazed crowd roars in appreciation. He then tossed a puppy into the bloody pool. Welcome back, everyone who just skipped that section. We are in the clear again, and I'm gonna continue with the case. Now, Joe didn't just keep live alligators um, as an attraction for customers. He also made sure to only hire the youngest and the prettiest girls to work as waitresses and to tend to the bar. None of the girls ever seemed to stay for very long, but Joe just simply put that down to them passing through the town and needing to make a quick buck. Now, in 1934, Joe met a woman named Minnie and her last name, I'm totally gonna butcher, it's Gotart? Gotart? I don't know how you say it, I'm gonna put it on the screen, so let me know in the comments if you know how to pronounce this surname. Now this woman was from Seguin, I think that's how you pronounce it, and all of Joe's friends did not like her at all. They thought Minnie was a very officious and very loathsome person. But Joe didn't listen to his friends and he really, really liked her, in fact, he loved her. And the two of them were soon running the bar together. The relationship between Minnie and Joe lasted around three years. That was until Joe fell in love with one of the younger waitresses that had just joined the bartending staff called Dolores Goodwin. And Dolores also fell in love with Joe. This was despite the fact that Joe had once thrown a bottle at Dolores, which had caused a scar to go from her eye to her neck. And then things got even more complicated when in 1937, 
2010, a young girl named Hazel Brown joined the waiting staff. Hazel was 22 years old. Hazel was full of self-confidence and was described as being very, very, very pretty. And of course, Joe being Joe, he also fell in love with Hazel. Joe now found himself in a bit of a predicament when all three of the women that he was in love with and, you know, get on with, worked in the exact same place at the exact same bar. In fact, it was his bar, so they're all working together. But that was until the summer of 1937, when Minnie suddenly went missing. She just vanished. When Minnie's friends and family began to investigate and make inquiries, Joe just told them that Minnie had given birth to a black baby after being pregnant and had fled the town for fear of embarrassment. Again, this is, you gotta think of the time. This is a time filled with racism and discrimination. So this kind of story would have easily been accepted by anyone who was asking questions. Now, only a few months after Minnie went missing, Joe married Dolores. After Joe married Dolores, he revealed to Dolores that Minnie hadn't actually run off. But instead, Joe had taken Minnie to a local beach before shooting her in the head and burying her in the sands. Dolores, however, thought Joe was just winding her up and didn't believe him one bit and just kind of pushed it to the side never ask questions about it ever again. And everything was going seemingly well for Joe and Dolores until January of 1938, when Dolores was unfortunately in a very, very, very bad car accident. This car crash was almost fatal, and as a result of the car crash, Dolores had to have her left arm amputated. However, locals quickly began spreading the rumor that Dolores had lost her arm because an alligator, one of Joe's alligators, had bitten it clean off. Strangely, just a few months after this car crash in April, Dolores also mysteriously disappeared. And then, not long after, Hazel Brown disappeared too. While the women in Joe's life were very inconsistent and they came and went, Joe's alligators were consistent. They were always there for him, which is... In hindsight, a really weird thing to say. And Joe was very, very protective of his alligators. On one occasion, a neighbor to Joe complained to him about the smell of rotting meat. Joe reacted to this complaint by pulling out a gun and explaining to the neighbor that it was probably the alligator food and that the nosy neighbor should mind his own business, otherwise he will become the alligator food. The neighbor, understandably, immediately packed up and moved to a different city. Despite all of these sudden and mysterious disappearances that were going on with Joe's staff, Joe's business continued to thrive. People kept coming to the alligator shows and Joe continued to entertain them. That was until about mid-1938, about summertime. Minnie's family had begun asking questions again. They had failed in trying to locate Minnie and had contacted the Bexar County Sheriff's Office for help. Now, as Joe was Minnie's last known employer and last known public boyfriend, the police went straight to him to ask questions and to interview him. However, the investigators found no evidence, nothing incriminating at all, and as a result of that, Joe was dismissed as being a suspect from the case. A few months later, another family went to the police about their missing daughter. Their daughter was 23-year-old Julia Tulia, who had worked part-time at Joe's bar. 
She, like the others, one day just mysteriously disappeared. The sheriff's deputies again went to Joe's bar to question him. Joe told the detectives that Julie was having some personal problems and that she wanted to move on, and so she did. Investigators, having nothing more to go on and no new leads, just accepted what Joe said and moved on. The investigators then decided to go to Julie's home address, which she shared with a roommate, to see if there's any sign or any evidence or a note or anything like that that could lead to finding Julia. When the investigators got to Julia's home, they noted that Julia's stuff was just out as if she was ready, to, she was about to come back from work any moment. Now, she hadn't packed any of her clothes or any of her possessions or anything like that. Investigators immediately went back to Joe and began questioning him again. Now, it was during this round of questioning that Joe suddenly remembered that he had lent Julia $500 because she had no belongings and she didn't want to go back to her house because apparently she had this massive argument with her roommates. And Julie had been in such a desperate state, which is why Joe lent her this $500, apparently. Now, as the investigators had no solid evidence, they left Joe and Julia's case sadly went cold. Over the next two months, two more of Joe's former employees were reported missing. Unfortunately, the names of these employees and the ages of these employees are lost to time. There are no public records of who these people were. Joe was questioned again relentlessly for hours and hours. However, Joe maintained his innocence and with no evidence or leads to go on, the police eventually dismissed Joe as a suspect in all of these cases and added these missing employees to their list of missing people. Then on September 23rd, 1938, Joe Ball's luck ran out. An old neighbour of Joe's had come forward to the police to say that he had witnessed Joe cutting meat off of a human body and feeding it to the alligators. Very soon after, a man came to the police to report that Joe had left a barrel of something that smelled very, very foul outside of this man's sister's barn. According to the man, it smelled like something dead was inside. The next morning, the investigators went to the barn to investigate the barrel, but they found the barrel wasn't there anymore. The woman that owned the barn and lived at the address, the man's sister, corroborated his story, and subsequently, the detectives decided to pay Joe another visit. Now, when the deputies arrived at Joe's saloon, they told him that they were gonna take him for questioning in San Antonio. Now, Joe asked the deputies that came to take him to questioning whether he could close up the bar. And seeing nothing wrong with that, the deputies agreed and just sat down at the bar. As the deputies sat down at the bar, Joe quickly grabbed a beer and slammed it down on the table, which startled the deputies. Then he quickly went over to his register, opened up the register and pulled out a .45 caliber pistol. Then he went straight over to his register, opened the register and pulled out a .45 caliber revolver. He briefly aims this revolver at the two deputies before turning the revolver on himself and pointing it at his chest. Now some sources say he pointed it at his head but it's unclear. Most sources say that he points it at his chest. Whatever the case, he pulled the trigger and he dropped dead. Not soon after, deputies from all over the region were scouring Joe's bar inch by inch looking for any kind of evidence that could link Joe to any of the missing persons cases. They discovered rotting meat around the alligator enclosure and they 
they also discovered an axe which had hair and blood on it. The investigators' initial theory was that Joe had mutilated his victims and the missing people and then fed them to the alligators. Investigators then began to link other disappearances that had happened in the area to Joe Ball. There were two missing barmaids and there was a teenage boy that all used to hang at Joe's bar. The horror of the situation began to set in in the local community and everyone was seeking answers. Now, if you remember from Joe's illegal alcohol business, he had a handyman called Clifton Wheeler. And Clifton Wheeler stayed on as Joe's handyman whilst he was running his bar business. Now, investigators were aware of Clifton Wheeler as being Joe's handyman, so they quickly went and picked him up and began questioning him. Clifton was taken to San Antonio for questioning. Now, Clifton initially denied having any knowledge about the whereabouts or what happened to the missing people, but as the questioning got more and more intensive and the questioning went on and on, Clifton finally admitted it in not being totally honest with the law enforcement and that he knew something about the whereabouts of the missing people. Clifton went on to say that Hazel Brown had fallen in love with another man and had planned to move away to start a new life. Hazel had also accused Joe of allegedly murdering Minnie and once Joe learned of Hazel's plans to run away, he lost the plot. He flew off the handle. So Joe killed her. Now investigators were unsure of whether to believe Clifton's stories and they wanted to validate his claims. So they asked Clifton to find and locate the area where Hazel was buried. The next day, Clifton took the investigators to an isolated spot about three miles away from the town. He scanned the area before digging in the loose soil. After a few moments, blood began to rise to the surface and the most horrific and disgusting smell you can imagine began to emanate from the hole that he was digging. Some of the officers present began to vomit due to the horrificness of the smell. It was a smell that you could not mistake it was the smell of a rotting corpse. Clifton began to pull out one arm, then he pulled out another arm, then he pulled out two legs, then he pulled out a torso, but notably, there was no head, which was close by. Detectives there discovered a jawbone, they discovered several teeth, and they discovered parts of a skull, which were later identified to be that of Hazel Brown. Investigators then began to question Clifton on what happened on the night that Hazel Brown was buried. According to Clifton, after a long night of heavy drinking, Joe had asked Clifton to collect some blankets and some alcohol, and after he had done so, the pair took Joe's car and picked up a 55-gallon barrel from a barn and put it in the car, then drove down to the river. Clifton then claims that Joe, at gunpoint, forced him to dig a grave. Once the grave was dug, Joe opens the barrel, and inside this barrel was Hazel Brown's body. Joe demanded that Clifton helped dismember the body. Now, why Joe wanted to dismember the body, or why the body was dismembered in the first place, I think that's lost in history and lost in time. I'm not really sure why they would dismember the body at this point, because they just put it straight into the grave once they have. Maybe it's an indication of how absolutely messed up Joe Ball is. Clifton initially refused to help Joe dismember the body, but again, he was put at gunpoint, and together they began to saw different parts of Hazel's body. Now, when Joe would get ill from the stench of the rotting corpse, they would take a break and drink more and more alcohol. After the dismemberment was complete, Clifton claims that they buried the legs, the arms, and the torso, and then they burnt the head on a campfire. Investigators, shocked by all this information, immediately asked Clifton 
whether they knew anything about Minnie, the whereabouts, what happened to her. Clifton claims that Joe had took Minnie to a secluded area where she thought they were going on a nice picnic. After a lot of drinking, Joe waited until Minnie was distracted with something before shooting her in the temple. Clifton told the investigators that Joe had brutally murdered Minnie because she was pregnant and Joe didn't want this pregnancy to interfere with his relationship with Dolores. Clifton, who I think went on the picnic with them or came to the picnic after Minnie had died, um, helped Joe, apparently at gunpoint again, to bury the body in the sand. The police, thinking that Clifton had all this information about all these disappeared women and men, went back to Clifton and started asking him about all these other missing people, but he categorically denied knowing anything about anyone else. Now, strangely, the detectives came across a scrapbook in Joe's bar, which was full of pictures of about a dozen different women. Weird as it is, the pictures have never been found to have any kind of connection to Joe. Nobody to this day really knows what the purpose of this scrapbook was. Now in a turn of good luck and good news, Dolores was found alive in California. She had left Joe for a new start in San Diego and hadn't told anyone. She just up and left and mysteriously disappeared. Now two weeks after Dolores was found, another woman who was missing in the area was also found alive. The flesh in the alligator pond was later identified to have not been from human origin. Dolores, when she was interviewed after she was found, claimed that Joe would have never put a person in the alligator tank. She said that Joe was very kind, that he was sweet, that he was a good person, and he would never hurt anybody unless he was pushed to. Despite none of the flesh that was recovered from the alligator enclosure being human, investigators speculated that Joe could have just picked up any remaining flesh and bones that were human and disposed of them in a different way. In 1939, Clifton Wheeler was found guilty of helping Joe bury these bodies and was sentenced to two years in prison. Joe's alligators were seized by the state of Texas and were given to the San Antonio Zoo where they lived out the rest of their lives as tourist attractions and as you can imagine they were a very very popular tourist attraction as they were allegedly involved in um, murder, a big murder case and allegedly fed human remains so people flocked from all over the country to see these two murderous alligators. We will never know exactly how many people Joe Ball killed and how many people he was responsible for the death of or if anyone actually ever ended up as alligator food. But his cult-like popularity lives to this day in Texan culture and unfortunately no justice was really found for any of the people who were involved for their friends and families and we will never truly know what drove Joe Ball to become such a polar opposite of his family, all of his family and siblings were such high-ranking and respected members of the community, so we'll never quite know whether what went wrong with Joe Ball. Thank you so much for watching this episode in my Curious Case True Crime series. I usually upload two videos a week, one on Wednesdays and one on Sundays. The Sunday video is a true crime video. The Wednesday video is a video that whatever video I want to make. This Wednesday coming up, I'm doing a mute bang slash Q&A uh, where I'm going to be answering your questions. I received quite a few questions, a ton of questions actually, more than I was expecting. But um, if you have any more questions, then please, please, please let me know in the comments down below or tweet me, like I said at the beginning of the video. I love to be able to answer any of your questions that you have. They can be true crime related, they can be just about me, they can be literally about anything, they can be about what 
zodiac sign I am. I don't know, they can be literally anything you want them to be. But yeah, on Wednesday there will be that video going up so you can get to know me a little bit more on this channel. Thank you all so, 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 so much for a thousand subscribers. That is absolutely crazy to me. I can't believe that I have a thousand subscribers now. I've started this channel just a few months ago and I am so, so happy that people are seeing these cases and that these stories are being told and that the memory of these people live on. I'm hoping to start doing some different kind of content on Wednesdays that isn't really conspiracy, that isn't really true crime related, just so the channel isn't always super dark and just so YouTube doesn't like shadow ban me or whatever because you know how much YouTube hates true crime YouTubers. Don't forget to subscribe and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post, like I said, true crime videos, mootbangs, all kinds of videos, plans that I've got in the works. Now with all that being said, I'll see you in the next video. YouTube, please do not demonetize me for saying the word cock in my video. Thank you very much. After, after the dismemberment, after the dismemberment, after the dismemberment, dismemberment, after the dismemberment was complete. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.